Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. I asked last week if anybody had suggestions for auction-style live stream platforms, and I think I found what I was looking for in Whatnot, and I should be doing a stream this Saturday afternoon, and there's a coupon code for people to get $10 off their first purchase, so just listen at the end for more info on that, but I don't want to waste people's time who aren't interested, so let's jump into the news. First up, an English translation of the Japanese-only Sega Saturn game Ninpan Manmaru has been restarted. So about 20 years ago, developers Alex Kidd and Simon Fang translated most of the text and cutscenes, but a bunch of the visual tile elements remained in Japanese, and no one really picked up the project since until about 2020, when Sega Extreme user Dark Fowls X started to jump back into it and even found and fixed a game-breaking bug towards the end of the game, which apparently hadn't been uh, found or really addressed simply because the game is so hard, not that many people made it to the end, which is always kind of funny. Um, Also, uh, this patch has now been made compatible with Knight of Dragons patching program, which does make things a ton easier. So, Overall, if you wanted to play this game, it's in a form where it should be a little bit more playable in English because of the further translations, but it's not quite in a spot where you would call it a completed, finished translation. So if you're curious about the game and wanted to play it, I get the impression that it's a perfect time to start, Um, but I think there's still being work done by the team currently involved. If you want absolutely any more info on this, I would strongly recommend, at the very least, reading through Pat's post here, and then of course, going to segasaturnshiro.com at the link at the bottom for the full story Uh, and you know I I just uh, I always love to see games get translated to any other language because I love having these things open up to people who have never experienced that before Also, just a couple of notes on this post. This came in last Tuesday evening, right after I had finished recording the podcast, which is why it kind of feels like it got left out of last week's. I just want to politely remind everybody that's never, ever the case. Sometimes I just have to record earlier than others and things get talked about the next week, but never missed. Uh, And also, this is yet another example of why I'm so excited and grateful to have new contributors, because the info here is everything that you would really need to know, unless you're a hardcore Saturn fan, and then you want to know a lot more, so then you follow the link to the Sega Saturn Shiro website, and you get everything you need to know about this game, a video embedded that explains everything to you, so I'm very grateful for the team and everybody else's submissions, and I love linking all of this stuff together, so thanks very much to absolutely everybody involved, the translators that started the game 20 years ago, the people working on it now, and of course the Shiro crew for always highlighting all the amazing behind-the-scenes work that's being done. This week's podcast is once again brought to you by JLC PCB, and this week I want to talk about how to order a stencil along with your PCB order. So first, why would you want a stencil? 
Well, if you have a PCB with a lot of surface mount components on it, manually soldering each component is a giant pain and takes a lot of time. So if you have a reflow oven or if you're really good with a hot air rework station, you could use a stencil to drag solder paste across just the SMD pads, use tweezers to place your components individually, and then just use heat to stick them to the board. Now, how to do that would require an entirely separate video, but if you know that that's something you want to do and if that would make your life easier, all you have to do is drag your Gerber file the same exact way you normally would into JLC PCB's website, and then select all of your options and scroll down to the bottom to select a stencil. Then if you want, you could also say if you want just the top or bottom of the PCB, or if you want one stencil for each, which of course would add a little cost because it's making two different stencils, but that's all you have to do. Also, if you're like me and you've placed a PCB order, but then forgot to make a stencil with that, you could also just have only a stencil made for you. The options are all the same as if you had added it along with the PCB. You just have to select top, bottom, or both, or one or two stencils. Also, while this does affect shipping, JLC PCB offers many different shipping options, ranging from incredibly affordable to expensive, but arrives very quickly. So absolutely, whatever shipping options for your budget, wherever it is that you're located. I'm showing options for both US and Canada here, and shipping's never going to be a problem with JLC PCB. So that's it for this time, but check out my other JLC PCB segments and previous weekly roundups for more info on how to order PCBs, how to order PCB assembly, and more info on the company. Up next is an open source HDMI kit that supports up to 25 HDMI inputs. So some background on this, a couple of years ago, the developer Ryan Black created the Origin 17, which is a 17 port switch kit that linked a few different five port switches together and had it all controlled via a touchscreen. And since then, Ryan has evolved the project to support modern HDMI protocols via the newer switches that have been released, as well as up to 25 ports. And Ryan also decided to open source this entire thing so people could build this as needed, which I think is a great idea, both because this is a project people could evolve into, and also it would be very expensive to create pre-made versions of this. I think Ryan mentioned it's about $500 in parts just for the parts to build a 25-port version. So I think people tackling it from the perspective of growing into it might actually be a great way to do this. So you might want to start by buying one of the compatible switches, hooking it into your setup, and making sure it works to your liking. Uh, switches have gotten a lot better recently, but you never know. Maybe something's not compatible. And so then maybe your next step might be to buy a second and then start checking out the GitHub and making things like the enclosure and getting the parts needed for control and buying some of the wiring. And then, of course, deciding, do you want the 3.2 inch or the 7 inch screen? So if you know eventually you're probably going to hit 25 ports, get the big screen. If you want the smaller one, that's fine. And maybe just, uh, you know, fill up all of the, the necessary slot holes for the different HDMI switches. Point is, you could make this whatever it is that you want, and you could grow it 
as needed. So I think open sourcing it was absolutely the right thing to do because of all of that. And if you'd like to uh, to try it out or if you're interested at all, I would check out the GitHub, check out Ryan's announcement video, and also check out the video on how to build the Origin 25 and really check out for yourself what features it has and see if you need it. But as always, I'm super appreciative to open source projects and whenever people share knowledge like this with the community. So thanks to Ryan and who knows, maybe one or two of you or more will end up building one of these and having a pretty unique and interesting touchscreen based 25 for HDMI switch. I recently reviewed three different HDMI to DisplayPort converters, but I think it's really important to start with the why and then get into the what, because I think this might not apply to everybody, but you might be surprised who is interested in it. So Basically, do you have a really nice PC monitor that has something like an HDMI 1.4 input, which supports up to 4K 30, and also a DisplayPort input that supports up to 4K 60? If so, the only way to get 4K 60 devices like modern game consoles and streaming boxes would be through some kind of converter. And to be specific, this is something that converts a native HDMI signal to a native DisplayPort signal. These are not pass-through adapters that just convert the connector. And if that's all you need, I have links to those down there as well. But this is for people that actually need a native DisplayPort signal. And if you're one of those people, I have three choices that are all good for you, but I think two are probably the proper choice. So uh, let me start out. And if you don't need any of this stuff, skip to the next section. But if you do, I got you covered. The first is essentially a cable by the brand Phonics that is HDMI on one side, DisplayPort on the other, and it has a power connector, just a little USB pigtail coming off of it if you need power. I'm using it right now to record my GH5 Lumix to my Datapath DisplayPort capture card, and power is not needed, but I did need it on some of the things. Other than that, it performed really great by not comp uh, compressing any of the colors. So what you get is 100% what you expect on the other side. But there were some shortcomings to it. The first is that it does not have any kind of audio extraction. So if your target device doesn't have that ability, you would need some kind of audio extractor. Also, it was not compatible with the PlayStation 3 or with any kind of streaming box, so you would need something like that HDMI square converter, which I think I have right here still. Yeah, the, ones, the one from last week that I talked about. You would need something like one of these in order to extract audio and to make it compatible with those devices. Um, the only other thing that I ran into with it was that it was not compatible with 960p mode on the OSSC, regardless of input resolution, which leads me to believe that there was some kind of either EDID error programmed in or, or some kind of compatibility issue. It did work with 1080p 5X with the Super Nintendo, so that's pretty cool. And in fact, all of these worked with all modes of the RetroTINK 5X, even in frame lock mode, all the way up to uh, 1440p. But... All of my experience with the OSSC has been, if one thing has a compatibility issue, there's going to be another thing that has a compatibility issue. So if you're predominantly a console gamer, totally fine. However, and in fact, the audio extraction wouldn't even be a big deal because you could just use the analog audio that uh, from whatever you're inputting into the OSSC. However, if you do use things like retro computers or arcade boards, you might run into a compatibility with ish in some resolutions. It could totally work fine in others. 
So at $30, it's probably going to be everybody's first choice. Uh, these splitter extractors are always useful for multiple things. So buying one of these wouldn't hurt as well. Uh, I left links to that and it's the one I reviewed last week, but overall, I think it's where everybody should start unless they know they need the features that I talk about next time. Uh, the SIG adapter is very expensive at 120, but it's got a couple of cool things. First, some minor praised in that it's just got an HDMI in port and a display port out. So whatever cable length you need, you just buy the sized cables. Whereas the fixed length stuff, uh, like the Phonex, you'd have to either get an extension cord, or if you didn't need that much, you'd have to coil it up. Whereas this, it's just whatever you need. Also, it is powered by micro USB, so once again, you could buy any size cable, and it's a low power device, so I just power it right off of my PC. And in fact, the SIG is what I've been using to capture any kind of video into my setup for analysis. Which brings me to its other features. The optical audio output extracts the audio without changing it at all which means that you could use it for MD Fourier analysis and you don't have to worry about it messing with your signal. You'd obviously need an MD Fourier approved audio capture device. I'll get to those at some point soon, but it's a solid device to use for that. It also has an analog output. So a digital to analog conversion, that's fine. If you plan on plugging this into speakers, especially like PC speakers to just watch your TV and movies or play your games, I can't imagine most people would have a complaint. Audiophiles would, but audiophiles would already know that anyway, so I would not worry about this for listening, but it was not something that you could use for audio analysis. Uh, so from that point, I guess I would consider the uh, analog audio output just kind of like a bonus. The only other cool things about it were that the EDID button allows you to tell whatever HDMI device you plugged into it that it's either a 4K, a 1080p, or it would try to learn whatever your target device is. Now, the downside is I did run into a few scenarios where I had to set it to 1080p for certain 1080p devices to connect. But the good news is the PlayStation 3 connected perfectly. And also in both of the 4K modes, my Apple TV and other streaming boxes did too, which means it has full compatibility with that. So that's kind of another big bonus of it. <clears throat> and the last thing is that it was compatible with everything I threw at it, including 960p through the OSSC. Now, once again, I don't have the ability to test every computer and every arcade board. I'm sure there's always going to be something you could throw at it that's not compatible. And of course, your monitor itself might have compatibility issues, but at least you don't really have to worry about the basics for this. And I don't think there would be any issues overall. So it's an excellent device. It's just very expensive and you might not need all of those features. But for some perspective, the Phonex adapter or cable adapter at 30, this at, you know, $25, $30 as well. And on top of that, if you needed EDID spoofing, that would be another $20 to $30. So if you needed all of these features, it's probably better just to get it all in one handy little device. But most people aren't going to need all of those features. And picking up one of these splitter audio extractors can be used for many different things as well. So you wouldn't just be buying it for this. So overall, most people are probably going to want the Phonex. Anybody that wants the features are going to go for the SIG. There's one more honorable mention, if you will. Back years ago when I uh, tested that ZSworks DisplayPort monitor, I bought a StarTech HD to DP converter. That was 
also HDMI 1.4. And this thing performed exactly like the Phonics in every way. Uh, it was not compatible with PS3, it was not compatible with 960p, but it did not compress colors and all that stuff. So if the other adapters are not available, which once again, the Phonics is even cheaper than this one. So go to that one first. But if it's not available and you need something, this would definitely work well enough for you in that I don't know how many times you would be in a situation where you wouldn't just use your monitors built in HDMI, but if you are in a place where you have to have a native display port signal and that one's all that's available, cool. Not throwing shade, back when I bought that, it was by far the cheapest solution and it performed really well. The only other thing to note is the SIG adapter that I tested is the new one. They had one a couple of years ago that did not perform as well. So make sure to use the link and get the one that looks exactly like that with like the mounting flaps on it. So overall, I think that should sum everything up. This isn't a product that everybody would need, but if you want more details, check out the post. And I guess I probably should have just made this a separate YouTube video. I probably could have rambled for another couple of minutes to make it 10 minutes, and 30 seconds, but I don't think that's what you all want from me. Please let me know if it is. I could easily swap these things around, but um, you know, I figured it would just be easier to stick in here with everything else. Pre-orders are now open for a vinyl soundtrack release of the game Getsu Fuma Den. I'm positive I'm pronouncing that wrong, and I'm very sorry. I mean, no offense. I'm just terrible at pronouncing stuff. But it is a, uh, a two-vinyl set, and side A, B, and C cover the new game, which was the sequel to the original released on Nintendo Switch and Steam. And side D is completely devoted to the original 8-bit soundtrack that was released on the Famicom. So if you're a fan of those games and you want an interesting way to experience the music, this is certainly a good thing to purchase. Uh, and it looks like it has a, a cool red vinyl uh, disc. Would you call them discs? How do you know? The vinyl record itself. Help me get my terminology right here. Um, and, you know, the usual pretty cool artwork and, and collectory things as well. Also, uh, I wanted to make a point that I did reach out to that company I talked about last time that did the other re-releases on vinyl and asked if they'd be interested in an interview or something. And they didn't get back to me, but I also got like the automated response that they get a ton of messages and they don't have time to respond to all of them. So if anybody is affiliated with any of these companies, especially the ones that really go above and beyond trying to get the best experience, uh, could you please make an introduction and let them know that I'm coming at this 100% positive. I just, uh, I'm fired up about all this stuff. I like it. I want to learn more about it. And while I'm sure I won't agree with every single thing, I mean, what human does, right? So it's just, it's a positive podcast, not like a, why are you making vinyl today type of crap? It's not me. It's not what I do anyway. So if you're affiliated with any of those companies, uh, especially the ones that concentrated on the Sega re-releases, maybe set me up because I would love to get the word out there and talk to people about all the effort and, and what they do to get these releases onto vinyl and out to us. So Shank just released a new video that I'm sure almost everybody's seen based on the view count that it's gotten, but I did want to add a few thoughts to it because it's not just a fun, positive, happy video about modding old PCs. It does kind of demonstrate what it takes to get into that. And I did just want to bring up the point that I think when it comes to some of the other projects Shank's done, like taking consoles and miniaturizing them and stuff like that, I think people see how much work goes into that. But when you take something like an old PC and mod it for new components, I think most people might accidentally think of that as, oh, well, Micro ATX has been around for, you know, 15, 20 years, whatever it is. Actually, no, 25 years, I think. So it's just the same bolts. So just bolt up the new one, right? And sometimes that's right. 
If you have one of those motherboards with absolutely everything built right in, you don't need anything else, yeah, you could probably get away with that. But what Shank ended up doing in this build is kind of showing what it really takes to modify these old components to house new stuff. And watching the video also sparked a few different things. Um, it made me realize that I should have not used a modern case for the PC I just built. I should have used something old and weird because I'm old and weird. Uh, and it also really renewed my love for weird PCs. Are there any old people out there that remember the whole PC revolution, case case revolution in the early 2000s where I think it started out where Dell released a black computer and everybody was like, holy crap, that's right. Computers don't need to be gross beige. They could be different colors. And it just really went downhill from there quickly. I had a PC that was shaped like a monster's face once. Uh, and I ended up selling it to an ex-coworker that really needed one. And I was like, look, all I got is the monster one with the light up eyes. Are you sure you want that? So, you know, an old coworker had a computer that was a light up monster for years. Um, I remember uh, building my little brother a cube. It was like a cube with a handle on top that was super small, um, mini ITX uh, motherboard. And it was what he used in college. And I just, I saw all of that stuff all through the early 2000s. And I loved those. And I was talking to Shank and we were kind of looking through new modern weird PC designs. And while there were some cool ones and some plexi ones and stuff like that, there wasn't anything weird. Like, what happened to, what about us weird people? I don't mind being weird. I rather enjoy it sometimes. And I would certainly love to have a PC that reflects that. So I don't know. I, I'm going to see if I could talk to some people behind the scenes uh, and see what we could do to make a new weird PC for maybe some new weird uses. So if you have any ideas or things that you want to see, please take the time to post in the comments. I will read all of them and I'll keep them in like a spreadsheet or something. And if we end up doing any of these projects, I want to see what other weirdness people want. Uh, and it could be anything from completely functional to just strange. And hey, maybe you could throw in a coffee machine into the side of it. I, I don't know. We'll figure it out. But... I want to see what we could do about bringing back weird PC cases. And uh, if you don't like that, you could definitely blame Shank for this one and getting the idea in my head. Wobbling Pixels just released a great video showing you how to get tweaked settings for your PlayStation 2 on the RetroTINK 5X. But before I go any further, I need to reiterate the first thing Wobbling Pixels said in the video, and that you don't need any of this. If you are the type of person that just wants to play, or if you're a tinkerer that's just in the mood to play at the moment and you don't want to mess around with anything, the only thing you have to do to get your PS2 running is plug it into the RetroTINK 5X and make sure the input's set. And if you're using component video cables, it already defaults to that anyway. So you basically got to just turn the damn things on and you're done. Generic mode looks awesome. It's defaulted to motion adaptive deinterlacing. So really, if you just want to play your games, don't worry about any of this stuff. But if you're crazy like me, and sometimes it's incredibly important to you to get the either the sharpest or the softest and smoothest, depending on 3D, 2D graphics, or any kind of aspect ratio control or scan lines or anything else, there's a lot of questions. You know, what resolutions should I have different settings for? What about scan lines? What about PAL versus NTSC? And Wobbling Pixels demoed 
all of that in this video. So, as I said, with respect, no, not putting this video down at all, nothing but praise for the video, but if you just want to play, just plug it in and play. There's not, you don't have to worry about lag or anything else, but if you want to tweak and get things the way that your eyes prefer, or I guess more important, more, more importantly, more importantly, uh, if you want each game to look the way you prefer, that's when you want to start digging into this. Because I know for me personally, if I'm playing games with 3D graphics, I do want them smooth. I want them scaled a certain way. But if I'm playing any of the old collections that are 2D-based games on this, then I want them sharp. I want razor-sharp pixels on this thing with some CRT-style scan lines going right through it. So check the video out. Watch the whole thing. The only things I would recommend skipping, no offense, is uh, there's... PAL and NTSC specific stuff in there too. So if you don't have any PAL consoles or no NTSC consoles, maybe skip those. Everything else is relevant and there's timestamps and everything in there too. So thanks to Wobbling Pixels for doing all of this and posting all the info out there. Uh, if you're a PS2 fan, you definitely appreciate it. So a few weeks ago, my friend Stika tagged me in a post on Twitter from a person who just wrote a blog entry about how they built their own Sega Genesis dev kit when they were a kid in the late 80s. And obviously it got my attention because I just, all of my, you know, all of my nerdy spider sense jumped up when I saw that. So I put it aside for a while until I had the time to actually read it and not skim it because stuff like that, I really want to dig in and absorb all of it. And I thought it was a really cool story. And I reached out to the person who wrote that and asked if they wanted to do an interview. And Tor was very gracious enough to give me his time. And we talked about not only that, but what it was like to be, you know, a fellow computer nerd in the late 80s, early 90s, where there was no internet where we could connect to each other the way we do today, we all had to find ways to physically pick up our computer and bring them to meetups and demo scenes and stuff like that. So I really think that there's a lot of people out there that would just love to hear his stories and, and just hear about the dev kit and all the other weird stuff that we talked about. So uh, this is definitely, a, you know, kind of more of a niche podcast, but I, I really enjoy doing these long form ones so much. Uh, and I was very grateful for people's time, uh, both who listen and who take the time to talk about this stuff. So if you're interested in any of that, please check out the interview with Tor. A few notes about that. I'm pretty sure how you pronounce his name is Tora, but I'm a dumb American that can't pronounce things. So he uh, gave me permission to just call him Tor, said that was totally okay. So for all of my, my Swedish friends, I'm sorry, I'm trying, but I'm just terrible at pronouncing things. Um, and also, I know I'm terrible at these thumbnail descriptions and the video descriptions. Mason does an amazing job making these thumbnails. And for this one, we kind of talked about, hey, you know, I want to highlight this person. So his picture. And I want to highlight the project that he did. And it's an interview. And, you know, Mason did an awesome job doing the thumbnail. But I did a terrible job, as usual, explaining what this stuff is. So does anybody have any suggestions on the best way to present the guests for these interviews? And I don't want to take up the time now that I'm supposed to be highlighting this interview, but I kind of want to pay it forward for everybody else as well. Because there are some obvious ones, like interview with RetroNAS creator Dan. Obviously, anybody that follows the channel knows Dan does a lot more than just RetroNAS, but that was a great and easy thumbnail to bring people in because it's like, oh, that project just launched. Let's hear from the creator. But I didn't know how to do this one or most of them, and I rely on the description for people to decide if it's something that they want to listen to or not. So any suggestions for anybody? The only thing I will not do, respectfully, is turn a guest's time and likeness into stupid clickbait.
There are some of my guests that would think it would be hilarious to go, ah, like make a stupid face in the thumbnail. That's different. We might do that just to be silly one time. But I'm talking about the, you know, the average guest who I'm just trying to highlight their work or their project or just who they are. What's the best way to get that across in a thumbnail form while still being respectful and getting the point across, you know, when, when it's a little challenging. Because like in this one, what was the thumbnail supposed to say? Interview with awesome dude who did a Genesis dev kit as a kid when there was no internet, you know, wiring stuff by hand. Can't really put that in a thumbnail. So I'm all ears to anybody uh, who has any suggestions about that. Thank you to my buddy who pointed that out. Uh, I just wanted to ask all of you because once again, I'm not trying to take time away from talking about Tor's interview. I just want to pay it forward and do all of these awesome people justice because there really are so many freaking cool people out there. And I just want to get their stories out to the people that I think would at least enjoy hearing them and want to get it in front of as many people as possible. So any suggestions, I'm all ears. Two modders have just released an HD texture pack for the Steam version of Resident Evil 4 that they're calling the Resident Evil 4 HD project. And what this is, is a way to purchase the game legally and then replace the textures with HD versions that they've created. The two modders, Albert Marin and Chris Morales, have done HD textures that are trying to be as faithful to the original as possible. So not something that looks wildly different, just something that looks like the game was rendered in HD or higher definition, if you will. And stuff like this, I think is really awesome because you're still purchasing the game legally. And I don't know if this is considered totally legal or a gray area. And respectfully, I don't really care because you're still purchasing the game. So nobody, nobody's losing any money off of this, but you do get a visual bump in this and it adds a whole bunch of different effects and features while still trying to keep it um, not original, but, you know, respectful to the GameCube version of it. So if you're interested in this stuff, definitely check out Donald's post because they go through everything that you would need to know about it, where to get it and all that stuff. Um, and I just, uh, I'm always impressed when I see it. So even if it's a game that I like, but maybe wouldn't go back and play through all the way, I still really enjoy seeing all of this stuff and seeing how they play out with the, the different additions to it. So if you need any, uh, any extra info, please check out the post and links to everything you need are right in there. Nintendo has just announced that they're going to begin shutting down the Wii U and 3DS eShops. And the dates for that are May 23rd of this year, you will no longer be able to add credit card funds to an account on either eShop. And after late August of this year, it will no longer be possible to add eShop cards to that account. And then by March of next year, so about a year from now, it will no longer be possible to redeem download codes from those. So basically, they're slowing down and shutting off the ability to buy those games. And there's a lot of great people with wonderful opinions on this. So I'm not going to waste any more of your time re reiterating any of those. I'll just say check out Modern Vintage Gamers video. If you want to download and back up your own games, I would check out Voltar's video as well as that. And there's only just two other points that I would like to make. First, this is exactly why we should be able to, and I'm very grateful to the fact that we have the ability to jailbreak our consoles. Because 
as far as I know, the terms of service of these platforms wasn't that you were renting the games, it's that you've purchased them. It would be different, like uh, the PlayStation Network, you get those games while you have your subscription, when your subscription ends, you're not allowed to play them anymore. That's fair, because it's all been laid out in terms. But we've all been led to believe that we own these games, and what happens if the Wii, shop clo- or the Wii U shop closes a year from now, and your Wii dies, and you have to buy another one, or your Wii U dies, what happens to those games? So by all means, jailbreak, back up your own stuff, make sure that you have the things that you have purchased. But the other thing that I just want to make sure that people know, because I haven't really heard other people talk clearly about this, just because the platforms are starting to shut down doesn't mean steal, steal, steal. The developers who still have their games on these platforms can still make money from them. So if you're honestly doing this from the perspective of archiving your own stuff, making sure that you have the stuff backed up, that's totally different. And while it's definitely a gray area, it's not one that I would ever look down upon. But this does not mean start stealing games that you could still purchase. And it sure as fuck does not mean put a whole bunch of 3DS games on a USB drive and sell it on eBay. I see that all the time. And I think those people are scumbags. And I don't really care the pushback I'm going to get if people are mad at me for saying it. You're a disgusting thief if you do something like that, and you are not at all the same person that backs up their own games or downloads a library to keep an archive to decide what you want to do with and make sure this stuff is still out there. Legally, they're the same thing, but morally, I don't think any reasonable person would look at those people as the same thing. So just because the platform's going down doesn't mean that this opens you up to make money off of somebody else's intellectual property or take money out of developers' pockets. And I don't want to speak for anybody else uh, personally, but I do know that most of my friends on the scene feel the exact same way. Personal backup and preservation is not profiting off of other people's IPs. So I'm, I'm certainly not putting anybody else's videos or thoughts on this down. I just wanted to be overly blunt and annoying about this because I wanted to make sure that I got the point across that, you know, there are still developers out there making money from these. So let's not take the money out of their pockets. Let's just back up the stuff that we've purchased and hold on to the stuff to make sure that it's available at a future time. Hopefully that came out all right, but I wanted to make sure this is one of the rare moments that I'd rather be harsher than polite just to make sure I got the point out there. And now for this week's Mr. News, Care of Lou from Lou's Retro Source. As usual, I will just be skimming through these, and if you want any details, please check out Lou's videos, subscribe to his channel, and even check out the post here if you want a quick summary of it as well. But first, the audio is mostly done in the PlayStation Core. There's still other things to do in the Core, but Robert's come a long way, and that's great news for fans of the platform. There has been some updates to the Atari Jaguar core, but at the moment it still requires two RAM sticks. So they're looking into what they could do about that and to see if the platform will require dual RAM or if it can be reworked into one. But uh, the main chips in the platform have been reverse engineered. It's really just how to handle the memory bus at this time. There's also some more updates for the Saturn core where it's progressing very nicely. And Hotego has posted a developer release schedule for his goals for the next year, and that's Neo Geo Pocket, Gradius 2, Sega System 18, Mortal Kombat, 
and work towards the Atari Jaguar platform. I do want to reiterate that this is the plans over the course of the next year. So don't expect to see Mortal Kombat tomorrow, although I would love that. Um, you know, this is just Hotego looking forward to trying to see his roadmap and aim for goals of this stuff. While I do support on Patreon, I do not support because I want something by a certain date. I support because I love the project. I'm appreciative of all the work the developers put in, and I don't personally like to put time frames on any of this stuff. Uh, but Hotego did, so we're just reiterating what he already said. There's also, in the far future, at least a year from now, look into PGM and CPS3, but don't hold your breath for that one. All that other stuff has to go through first. Um, there's also a new Gremlin Blockade Core, which is a game that was an arcade board from the 70s, so that's something that's kind of cool for preservation. And there's also custom boot ROMs for just different cores as well. So for all of the detailed updates, definitely check out Lou's video. And on a personal note, I watched that video this week, and a day after it went live, there were more views than Lou has subscribers does not cost money to subscribe to people. If you like Lou's work, hit that subscribe button, please. Uh, but as always, thanks very much to Lou for his contributions, and we'll keep you updated with all the very cool stuff going on on the Mr. Platform. I want to talk for a moment about whatnot, but I want to get the transparency out of the way right here at the beginning. I am not being paid to talk about this. I am not sponsored by them in any way at all. And the coupon code that I'm able to give you is available to anybody who sells on the platform. So while... Who knows? Maybe someday we'll all find out that this is a perfect fit for me and I will be sponsored by them. There has been zero talk of that so far. I just think this is exactly what it is I was hoping for and want to share it with anybody who's interested and hopefully allow you all to try it out with me. And the one thing I can guarantee is that coupon code will give you $10 towards your first purchase there. So it's not $10 towards beer money, sadly enough. It's just you sign up with the link in the description you get your account and whatever you buy, not from me, from anybody, your first purchase on whatnot, you have $10 off of that. So hopefully that's enough of an incentive to keep your attention for another minute or two and possibly even to join me on a live stream. But the reason I want to do this and the reason I want to sign up for this platform is of all the times I have something weird or unique or rare that aren't necessarily expensive, but they're just stuff that we would like that nobody else would. So I don't want to list it on eBay and deal with all the stuff that happens there. I want to be able to take something and demo it live. And not like that time I did the three hour live stream demoing the VGA monitor stuff. I mean, like within reason, like here's the thing, you know, let me open a box and see what I found. Oh crap. I don't even remember testing that one. All right, let's plug it in. Let's make sure it works. Let's make sure I have the right power supply. Let's explain what it does. Hey, anybody in the chat has any questions? Oh yeah, this is perfect for you. Or no, don't buy this. Buy the other thing instead. Like I, I, I really am excited to have that kind of interaction with this stuff, and I'm especially excited to have stuff that's collecting dust and taking up space that I'll never use again go to somebody that would actually use it or benefit from it. I also want to use this platform to do giveaways, because there's been a bunch of times that I've done projects and that ended up at the end of a video with something I know I'll never need again, but I don't want to put it up on eBay. It would seem weird for some of these, and some of the giveaways I've done didn't really go the way I wanted to. The people who received them are all awesome. I just mean it didn't really, it wasn't as fun as I thought. There wasn't as much interaction between us and the people who received them were all gracious and amazing. I just, I feel like we could have all together had more fun with it. And that's what I want to try to do here. So 
Uh, I'm going to be doing a stream probably like 2 p.m. New York time this Saturday. Uh, that might change. I just want to make sure everything's all set up correctly. But follow me on Whatnot. Get your free $10 off your first purchase by signing up through there. And um, I think what I'm going to do is have one cool item. Like, I think I have a spare PAL GameCube with a GC loader and a shielded RGB cable with a Game Boy player. I will explain why that's important during the live stream. Some of you already know, but it does have the digital output. I think I have a spare of those that I'll use as like the featured item. So if I start at two, maybe at 3.30, I'll auction that off or something. And we'll hang out before then and, and do much cheaper and weirder stuff just to kind of get a feel for the platform. Do we all like it? Is it the right place for me? Is it the right place for you? And if that goes well, I will do a follow-up one with a lot bigger items. Uh, I have a couple of spare HDMI modded consoles. I have some much rarer stuff. It's going to be shippable, so no BVMs this time. But I do have some bigger items. And I also want to hear from you in the chat. So if we're waiting for one thing, you know, if I'm testing one thing, we're having a conversation about something, and I bring up another, let me know if you're even interested in it. You know, there's stuff I've never listed before, because I don't know if anybody cares. And you know, we often do. We're nerds. So uh, give me a follow. Get your free 10 bucks off. We'll see where this goes. Maybe we'll do it and never do it again. Maybe it'll be my favorite new place to hang out. I don't know. We'll find out together. But hopefully I'll see all of you. But before I go, as always, thank you to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially to everybody who supports in any way possible, because it is you who is keeping all of this stuff alive. So thank you all so much. Thank you for your time. And hopefully I will see you on Saturday.